Good morning. morning. Happy to see you here on this rainy, I think it's still raining. We haven't been outside in a while. (laughs) Sunday morning. As I sit here worshiping with you and preparing to give my last sermon with you all as your director of spiritual formation, I'm finding it hard to wrap my head around it. The, The gravity of what this season of life what you all have meant to me. So as I've been chewing on what the last three and a half years have looked like, I've been packing and preparing, sorting through drawers and going through closets. Anyone who's moved knows the slog that is going through all of your things. And in those spaces, I've been humbly reminded of how heavy and how hard change can be, not bad, but heavy and hard takes some time and patience. It requires us to embrace a myriad of contradictory emotions. They don't quite make sense when you line them up next to each other. One minute we feel grief, the next minute it's a hopeful excitement, then maybe there's some fear quickly followed by gratitude. It's disorienting. And on top of that, I am extra weary of change because I've never been quite good at it, or so I've been told. It's a joke in my family that I don't deal with it wonderfully. So when we told my parents that we were moving to St. Louis, my mom's face on Zoom just kind of went, oh no, (laughs) oh no, Nicole has never been good with this, this should be fun. And that's not entirely untrue. I know from making a couple of cross-country moves now that I'm what you would call a (laughs) pre-mourner. When I know an ending is coming, I can't ignore it. I just can't ignore it. I know I'm not alone in that. Moments suddenly become more poignant because I become maybe hyper-focused on how fleeting these moments are. My grip can become tighter on people and places that I love because I know my time with them is coming to an end. A weight descends upon my heart. It's a mix of sadness and grief, yes, but also of love, of appreciation, even wonder, really. I don't think that the emotions are as much of a problem as maybe the time I spend with them. I think that's what my family picks up on. I think what my loved ones see is someone who seems to be maybe stuck in a melancholy of sorts. But I always make it through. So it's with that in mind that I've been spending some time faithfully interrogating maybe what we all mean when we say that someone is good or bad at change. What does that mean? Because the irony is It's only when I sit with those sometimes yucky, very contradictory emotions, the very thing that earns me that bad rap of being bad with change, it's only when I sit with that that I'm able to do my deepest processing, that sacred work of meaning-making. This points to one of those old wisdoms that we always have to relearn. It's not fun, but we always have to relearn it. But it's true. 
We cannot fully embrace new beginnings without working through the endings. We can't jump or cut corners. When we take time to acknowledge endings, to let them breathe a little, or maybe sit in the discomfort that change brings, they begin to change with us. The endings change with us. The grief can thaw sometimes into love. And we can process and appreciate differently and more deeply the beautiful communities and encounters that we've had in our lives. And like I said, this is an old wisdom. We've all heard it before and we know it's true. We know it's true in our bones. But honestly, how often do we practice that truth? When was the last time you took a beat to sit in the discomfort of new change or name the grief that often accompanies new change? And when I say sit with it, I don't mean try and fix it as much as we love to do that or solve it or even power through it. Just sit with it. Just sit with it. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we spend more time trying to avoid those moments. And I understand why. Change is hard, it's exhausting, and like I said earlier, it's disorienting. I'm feeling all of those things right now, I can tell you. <laughs> Change requires us to brush elbows a little bit with what we do not know and what we cannot control. We brush elbows with the mystery of life, and that can be disconcerting. Not always, but often change can mean starting over. And if you've ever started over at a new school or in a new city, you know how scary that can be. So when we begin to faithfully interrogate what we mean when we say someone is good at change, we find that often what's being suggested is that you should focus on the good things that lie in your future and ignore the grief for things that will soon be in your past. For some things, that might work, maybe. But with things like grief and seasons of life, we cannot cherry-pick what we feel. It's a package deal. And the truth is, if we really choose to not interact with that grief, then we're also choosing not to interact with love because they're two sides of the same coin. To feel grief means you have felt love. And to experience love is really the whole point of what we're doing here, isn't it? It's the whole point of who Jesus calls us to be. That's the complexity of life that we can't get around. It's the complexity of Easter, life and death, grief and love. And we see that complexity in our text today. In the Luke text specifically, we pick up right on the heels of Easter morning, mere hours later. We're on the road from Jerusalem, headed for Emmaus, following two people who are journeying home on the afternoon of Jesus's resurrection. They haven't seen the empty tomb for themselves, but they've heard a weird rumor going around that the tomb of Jesus, their prophet and Messiah, is empty. And while that might cue us to choruses of hallelujah and Easter egg hunts on the roof, them not so much. They're having a hard time with it. 
We can't forget or separate that they just watched Jesus be tortured and crucified not three days before. That is not an ending that can be ignored. It's not an ending that can be fixed. The resurrection they have yet to understand will bring them a new beginning, but it will not erase that experience. They are smack dab in the middle of grief, confusion, and disappointment, and it needs some time to breathe. Unlike us, they did not get a chance to pre-mourn over the 40 days of Lent. They just got Holy Week. Can you imagine if that's all we got? So they still need time to sit with it, to sit with this weird new reality. In their confused and grief-stricken state, we hear them say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And I, I love that we get to hear this because it's such a vulnerable moment that really encapsulates that complexity of what they must be feeling. They're naming it. We had hoped. We are confused. We are sad. They aren't trying to fix it. They aren't trying to fight it. They're just owning the heartbreak and the confusion. And with an ending that fresh, that's all you can really do. It's only after they have given voice to their grief that Jesus takes a breath and, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, starts to patiently walk through the scriptures with them. Jesus feels very motherly here to me. It reminds me of when my parents would help my sister and I with homework after school. You can all harken back to those days. We would get so tired and frustrated sometimes with what we were learning, kind of hit that wall, right? And I can just, I remember it now, my parents would take a breath and say, okay, let's go back to the beginning. It's that old wisdom on a micro level. They knew we needed a minute to just sit with it. It was too much. No forcing anything was going to get us anywhere. We needed to sit. <laughs> we needed to sit with it. We needed to retrace our steps. We needed to acknowledge where we had started. And the new things would begin to make more sense with time. And as an aside, it bothers me that most translations of verse 25 you'll see in your text translate the Greek word anayatos as foolish. Foolish, Jesus says. And I don't like it because that word feels very shamey. There's a shame-forward connotation that we feel when someone calls us a fool or foolish. I don't, I don't quite think that's what's happening here. It's at least not very motherly, or maybe it is, but I don't know. But really, the heart of what that word means is just not understanding. Jesus is saying, oh, I, you don't understand. You are not understanding. And to be, fair, to be fair, it has been thousands of years, and we still argue about what really happened at the resurrection. So I think we'd be fools to call those people foolish after just a few hours of processing. But either way, whether or not Jesus was being snippy, the translation was weird, the important piece is that he showed up. 
Their grief, their inability to stay positive did not hinder Jesus in any way from meeting them in that moment on their journey. And what's more is that Jesus stays. He stays with them. He could have left, vanished to go see some friends in the upper room. (laughs) He stays. He could have argued his case, maybe. But he just stays. I think Jesus could see how much grief and change they were already digesting. You can see it on people's faces sometimes when they're overwhelmed with something. He knew what they needed. He knew that they couldn't fully embrace this new beginning without spending some time working through this traumatic ending. Who knows how many hours they spent on the road together. I imagine Jesus walking alongside them slowly, telling them stories, maybe giving them space, some space to process maybe, to ask questions, to cry, to laugh. And eventually, Hours later, as the sun begins to set and they draw near to their village, they find themselves feeling a little bit of joy, not just grief. Unexpected pieces of hope within their despair. By just showing up and giving them a safe space to breathe and be vulnerable, Jesus shows them how to begin to heal, how to marry the ending with the beginning. This is the sacred work of showing up. And what's great is that the story doesn't end there. It could. Jesus stays with them into the night, doing what Jesus does best, eating and drinking. Gotta love him for it. This journey through hope, death, and so much change has led them all back to the table. Back to where it began. Back to the table. This at the table is where their new journey will begin. Jesus literally walked them through the end of one hope and right into the beginning of another hope. Once Jesus opens their eyes, they've broken the bread, they've drank the wine, Jesus opens their eyes, makes sure they see for themselves that all will be well, and then he vanishes. It never really mattered if those two were good at change or not, because God was going to walk them through it regardless. And while we may not get the experience of a roadside chat with Jesus, our faith does offer us ways to navigate change and grief and uncertainty, the general messiness of life. Our psalm today is part of the Hallel a grouping of psalms that are often recited during Jewish celebrations such as Passover and Hanukkah. It functions as a way for them to show up to God. Through this ancient formula of praise, petition, reorientation, we're offered a ready-made format to give thanks for the present moment, to remember the suffering of past moments, and to look forward with hope to the future. The Psalms can help us name beginnings and endings. They can help us process our grief and our love. Rituals, texts, and practices like this are some of the many ways we look to our faith, just look at the building around us, to find our bearings when life throws us us curveballs. 
In this one short psalm, we hear the pain of suffering situated right next to words of hope and praise. This ancient community made a prayer out of their experience of life's complexity. They made it a prayer. I think part of what actually being good at change really means, aside from not being afraid of all the feelings it brings up, is just remembering that we aren't the first ones to experience it. We're not, as much as it might feel that way. Our entire Bible is basically a compilation of stories of how people coped with change. Whether it was exile, floods, unexpected babies, or the resurrection of Christ, these words, our scriptures, give witness to a community that chose to come together and face that change head on. We now get to be the lucky recipients of those rich traditions and words that have since come out of that community. So while the verdict is still out on how I process endings and beginnings, I stand here in front of you confident that God will and already is meeting me on this journey, just as God is meeting you on yours. Maybe Jesus and I will sit for a while and cry, or maybe we'll be giddy with excitement over having a dishwasher finally after four years without one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I'd like to think he would. But either way, it's just about showing up and journeying together. It's really, that's what it's about. Our journey through life and with God is not meant to be done alone, and it is most definitely not meant to only be an intellectual exercise. Just like on the road to Emmaus, when we show up authentically and vulnerably for each other and for ourselves, offering the gift of our time and presence, that is when we practice incarnational faith. That's what that word means. This text reminds us to let our grief breathe. You can let it breathe. God is not scared of it, so we don't have to be scared of it either. It's okay to work through gr grief and joy at the same time. They don't cancel each other out. We need both of them. This text reminds us that we are a people of the journey, as Luke goes on to name the early church in the book of Acts. We are people of the journey, not people of the destination. Our faith does not end with Easter. Doesn't start at Christmas, doesn't end at Easter. Easter is the great proclamation that as long as there are endings, there will always be new beginnings. And we're meant to experience all of it. So let us embrace whatever season or journey we're on right now, knowing that God meets us there just to sit with us, to let it breathe, and to walk us back to the table. Let us remember to lean on the wisdom of the great cloud of witnesses who have come before us. And lastly, but most importantly, let us remember to always gather around the table because it is in the sacred yet very simple act of showing up, of breaking bread together, that our eyes are opened 
to the persistent presence of God in everything, just like we read in our text. Our eyes are opened to the persistent presence of God in every ending and every hopeful beginning. Thanks be to God for that. Amen.